I'm Dr. Sanjay Kesha, endocrinologist working at Narayana Hospitals in Calcutta. Today, I'm going to share with you a case with type 2 diabetes and the thoughts behind using medication, the new combination drugs um, in diabetes, which have truly changed the way we practice uh, diabetes today. I'll talk about Mrs. Kamal. She's a college professor, 54-year-old lady with type 2 diabetes over the last four years. She has a history of acute coronary syndrome a year ago and had undergone PTCA. So she visited as part of her routine checkup, saying that she was well but lately feeling a bit weak. She had a family history of myocardial infarction in her father who had undergone CABG roughly five years ago. The lady on examination had a BMI of 29.7 with a weight of 71 kilograms. Her blood pressure, 146 by 86 millimeters of mercury. Her blood sugars were not well controlled, an A1C of 8.4%. Her lipid profile was well controlled as she was on a fairly large dose of statin following her ACS a few years ago. Her LDL cholesterol was 75, her HDL cholesterol 37, total cholesterol 168, and a triglyceride of 156. Her serum creatinine was normal, but an EGFR on calculation was 65. Her urinary albumin creatinine ratio, however, was raised at 300 milligrams per gram of creatinine. Her 2D echo showed mild uh, dilated chambers of the left atrium and right atrium. Her medication at present included metformin one gram twice daily, Glimipiride 4 milligrams a day, Losartan 50 milligrams a day, Atorvastatin 40 milligrams a day, Amlodipine 5 milligrams a day, Chlorthalidone 12.5 milligrams a day, Metoprolol XR 50 milligrams a day, and aspirin. She was on quite a few medication and also complained of why does she need to take so many drugs. Uh, every single day. As a college professor, she was having a sedentary lifestyle. And like most of us, she was also trying to lose weight if possible, uh, which she tried to help herself by doing exercises regularly. Um, but it usually used to occur in fits and starts. She had become frustrated because weight loss was something which many doctors in the past had also suggested would help her in the long run. Lately, she'd also complained of feeling of hypoglycemia during the day while she was at work, and this was definitely troubling her. So in summary, what are the most important um, clinical pointers that we need to sort of harp upon 
to uh, perhaps guide us as to what uh, should be the next strategy in terms of uh, clinical management. In short, if you look at uh, what she has in terms of the challenges, she has got uncontrolled hyperglycemia as evidenced by her hemoglobin A1c. She is obese with a BMI of 29.7. She's hypertensive on a lot of medication per se. With a history of ACS in the past with PTCA again, very high risk of cardiovascular events. She has now substantial microalbuminuria, in fact, bordering macroalbuminuria, honestly speaking. And also, she was lately being troubled with hypoglycemia as well at work. So this truly puts this patient in a fairly very high-risk category for cardiovascular events. This patient already has some organ damage in terms of cardio and renal sort of syndromes, really. And as a consequence, her risk of having an acute vascular event would be extremely high. Since she has had a cardiovascular event in the past, we could perhaps have an individualized A1C in her case. Uh, but in an ideal world, perhaps for somebody at her age who has perhaps another 20 or 25 years of life left at the age of 54, uh, I still would prefer an A1C closer to 7% as long as she does not get hypoglycemia. Weight gain is definitely an issue. While her lifestyle makes it difficult to perhaps uh, do regular exercise, um, she needs to be encouraged to essentially take some time out to do uh, regular physical exercise per se. So now that we have a summary with respect to what we perhaps want to address um, in this lady, let's just fall back on the signs that we perhaps know uh, today. So type 2 diabetes is a complex disease, okay? Um, it is essentially dominated by chronic hyperglycemia, and uh, that usually, gradually over a period of time, actually um, continues to deteriorate. The other issues with type 2 diabetes is the comorbidities that come along with it. Now, in this lady, she's overweight or obese, She's also hypertensive. She definitely was dyslipidemic as well. She's on a fairly high dose of statin, as well as hypertension per se. So her obesity, which was largely abdominal obesity, her arterial hypertension, her dyslipidemia, all that basically fuels the atherothrombotic process. And um, these patients with um, metabolic syndrome at the heart of her uh, illness, uh, there usually is low-grade inflammation and oxidative stress. These risk factors accelerate the atherosclerotic process and results in cardiovascular diseases, both coronary, cerebrovascular, as well as peripheral vascular disease as well. And Roughly, as we know today, that two-thirds of our patients with type 2 diabetes actually succumb to cardiovascular events. So she already has had an event, and we also are aware that patients with type 2 diabetes 
uh, are at a very increased risk of cardiovascular events. So we need to address this head on uh, aggressively uh, so that we can perhaps uh, make her life longer and reduce her mobility and mortality. For the last couple of decades, there has been huge advances in medical science, okay? So in terms of uh, the ability to lower cardiovascular complications, yes, good control of blood pressure and the use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor antagonists have actually helped. Similarly, a fairly high dose statins have also helped in reducing the risk of complications. In diabetes as well, there have been major advances as we have now got drugs like SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 analogs, and perhaps inquitin-based therapy like DPP-4 inhibitors. And so these drugs are also not only cardiovascularly and renally friendly, but they perhaps also uh, go one step further in perhaps protecting the heart and kidney. So just as Heart disease is uh, something which we are concerned about in her case. She also has microalbuminuria. And patients with type 2 diabetes, again, have an increased risk of chronic kidney disease progressing. We all are aware that patients with CKD in diabetes, however, largely succumb to heart disease as well as heart failure and stage renal disease comes fairly late um, if our patient doesn't basically succumb to cardiovascular events. So two major complications in her case, cardiovascular and renal, and both of these major complications need to be addressed head on because it is the microalbuminuria which is telling us that her endothelium is leaky, and these patients get even further accelerated atherosclerosis and more cardiovascular and as well as cerebrovascular events. This results in premature death among patients with type 2 diabetes, and she is definitely at a fairly high risk of the same. If you look back in time, how the ADA recommendations have changed in 2015. Uh, we used to be glucocentric with the target A1Cs uh, at the back of our mind when we are treating patients with diabetes. But subsequently, after the rosiglitazone fiasco and the new groups of drugs that we have in clinical practice, uh, be it the DPP4 inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, or GLP1 analogs, we have become aware as well as thank the pharmaceutical industry and our colleagues in basic science for discovering such molecules, which have shown that they are not only cardiovascularly and renally safe, but perhaps are also cardiovascularly protective. And the data is so strong and so much so that the recommendations now are that if your patient has got ASCVD, which is nothing but atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or CKD or heart failure, you're perhaps most welcome to start these new groups of drugs even, even without even trying to target a hemoglobin A1C. So even if your patient's A1C is perhaps reasonably well-controlled, 
you perhaps are going to do better justice to your patient using these groups of drugs because this is going to result in improved longevity and reduced morbidity for these patients when these molecules are used in clinical practice. So in 2015, the era of evolving dimensions in terms of cardiovascular care was truly set by the EMPA-REG outcome study. So in this study, um, which was a great surprise when it was first announced at the ADA, um, demonstrated significant benefits with the use of empagliflozin, in particularly reducing the risk of heart failure by 35%. But it also reduced mortality as well from cardiovascular events. So amongst the participants with a baseline history of heart failure, empagliflozin was associated with a lower numerical rate of heart failure of 0.75, so 25%, and even a reduction in cardiovascular death, okay? And uh, this was um, regardless of your patient having baseline heart failure or not. Subsequently, there have been studies to show that the benefits in terms of heart failure are also available for patients who do not have diabetes as well. Okay, so you have the Emperor Reduced study, uh, which has showed us quite nicely that even those patients not having diabetes seem to benefit from this group of drugs. So amongst the participants who had an initial hospitalization for heart failure, uh, empagliflozin was associated with a twofold reduction in the risk of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. And it was possible that the SGLT2 inhibitor might prevent the development of heart failure in patients with type 2 diabetes when Empareg was first basically promulgated. Empagliflozin was the first SGLT2 inhibitor which showed such promising uh, reduction in cardiovascular events um, amongst the SGLT2 inhibitors. And subsequently, there were others which perhaps did not match up to empagliflozin, but did show that the trends were in the same direction. Positive top-line results of Emperor Reduced also has been recently published, the HEFREF with and without diabetes, which I've already mentioned, and the EMPA Heart CardioLink 6 study demonstrated that empagliflozin could produce early reversal of cardiac remodeling in patients with type 2 diabetes and stable coronary artery disease. So there is also a reduction in left ventricular mass with the use of empagliflozin uh, as part of therapy for type 2 diabetes. In a sub-analysis of the EMPA-REG study, empagliflozin decreased even new onset or worsening of nephropathy by 39% on the top of the use of the regular or standard of care RAS blockade therapy in patients with type 2 diabetes. The addition of empagliflozin was associated with slower progression of kidney disease, and the cardiovascular and renal benefits seems to be maintained independent of EGFR, at least till an EGFR of 30. I'm sure we're waiting for the newer studies which will publish will be published and perhaps we'll be able to use empagliflozin with knee GFR down all the way to 20. The beauty of this drug 
was not only in reducing cardiovascular events, but also basically reduced the progression of EGFR decline in patients with type 2 diabetes. Because of the unique mechanism of action of SGLT2 inhibitors and a wide range of effects that translate to potential benefits beyond the glycemic control, especially in diabetic kidney disease patients, uh, the associated pleiotropic effects, including reductions not only in blood sugar concerned, blood sugars, but also there's an element of natriuresis, a decrease in blood pressure, particularly systolic more than diastolic, and weight loss in terms of body weight loss, which is largely fat loss per se, because the way this drug works, you basically lose glucose through your kidneys, and that glucose loss through the kidneys translate to fat loss from the body. Why is that? Because when we human beings store energy, be it sugar, uh, we actually basically convert that into fat and store it in the human body. The only organ or couple of organ systems which perhaps store uh, glucose in terms of glycogen is the liver and perhaps the skeletal muscle. But a more efficient way of storing excess calories is essentially by body fat. And so losing those calories through your kidneys essentially results in a reduction in basically body fat per se. And these pleiotropic benefits uh, perhaps have something to do with respect to the benefits it has shown in terms of cardiorenal events per se. Another group of drug which is now available in combination with empagliflozin, a DPP4 inhibitor, linagliptin per se, um, is also available in combination. Now, this linagliptin, uh, which is again part of the incretin-based therapy, uh, which has also become a fairly common invoke therapy in patients with type 2 diabetes, has a unique profile with primarily non-renal but hepatobiliary route of elimination, okay? So as a consequence, in patients with kidney disease, you don't need to change the dose. It's one single dose of five milligrams, okay, which you need to continue in your patients with diabetes, as well as in patients with CKD. Now, we have even double-blind trial data from, with the use of um, elinagliptin. So the Carmelina study, which was again something which they had to do as part of the cardiovascular outcome trials for every new drug that we need to do because the FDA mandated that since the rosiglitazone fiasco, the linagliptin cardiovascular outcome confirmed that linagliptin reduced basically albuminuria by 14%, but also was cardiovascularly neutral in terms of basically cardiovascular outcomes. So linagliptin was safe in patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, in, apart from it being sort of safe for heart disease, uh, there were benefits in terms of um, kidney disease, albin, albin, progression of albuminuria. And uh, the way the drug works, uh, uh, if we understand incretin biology, that it essentially does not lower blood sugars any further once your blood sugars are normal, okay? So uh, that's the beauty of the incretin biology per se. Now, the combination of an SGLT2 inhibitor, empagliflozin, 
and DPP phone inhibitor, Lena Glipton, uh, essentially, uh, which is marketed, um, has done a great um, sort of justice and benefit to patients uh, with type 2 diabetes. Uh, it is a very important strategy which uh, helps us to achieve a hemoglobin A1C target without the risk of hypoglycemia because, again, with um, the SGLT2 inhibitors lower blood sugar through a sort of a glucose-independent mechanism. And also, there are the combination results in a reduction in body weight, which is largely driven by the SGLT2 inhibitor empagliflozin. When this combination is added to metformin, which is the, the three-drug regimen, uh, which unfortunately is not available as one single pill in our country, but it's available in the United States of America, again, um, shows us quite nicely that this combination is definitely helpful for patients with type 2 diabetes because, again, all these drugs, three drugs essentially would give you perhaps no increase in risk of hypoglycemia. So the combination of Empalina um, have hypoglycemia risk, which is as good as placebo, uh, close to about 2 to 3%. A reduction in the genital infections, which may occur with the use of SGLT2 inhibitors, um, has been shown by several studies, including by uh, Rosenstock and Lewin, uh, who have shown that almost there's a 50% reduction when you use a DPP-4 inhibitor along with an SGLT2 inhibitor per se. Uh, some of it might be due to the DPP-4 inhibition, which occurs in sort of the fungi and bacteria, and some of it might be due to its ability to lower blood sugars more than just the single drug per se. And that's the reason why perhaps this combination is something which is very close to my heart in terms of benefits and this one plus one strategy of an SGLT2 and a DPP4 definitely gives us something to really write home about. Uh, it is definitely more than two because um, it, it also is a, a sort of much more value addition in terms of it is cheaper for patients with type 2 diabetes compared to when you use these two drugs separately when the um, two drugs then become more expensive as a consequence. Because of a better blood glucose control uh, with this combination, I think, and its ability to protect the heart and kidney, um, we should perhaps uh, try and use this drug in Mrs. Kamal uh, and lower her dose of glimepiride. This would essentially help her to lose weight, reduce her risk of heart failure, because she has uh, many reasons for heart failure, honestly speaking, uh, in terms of microalbuminuria, which increases heart failure risk, already have a history of ACS, again, which increases uh, the risk of heart failure risk, and then she has obesity as well. And this combination definitely would address many of the pathophysiological factors uh, which will reduce the heart failure in this patient. Apart from what I have mentioned, uh, definitely the combination reduces the number of pills that the patient has to take. And that's just something which I might to, like to remind you, which the patient herself seemed to mention uh, that she was being bothered by taking so many tablets um, every day, which can become quite frustrating. Uh, so um, adding uh, these two wonderful drugs in a combination would definitely reduce her basically pill burden. And this subsequently would perhaps improve adherence 
and adherence brings about even better outcomes in the real world, okay? You have very good outcomes in double-blind trials because our patients are very well monitored, okay? Uh, which perhaps is not the case when they are in the real world. So being able to provide patients options in terms of fewer pills uh, would result in better adherence as well as better outcomes in the real world. So um, this is a combination we definitely need to think about um, using in Mrs. Kamal, uh, and this would go a long way in terms of reducing her morbidity as well as risk of mortality as well. So with those few words, um, I'd like to stop here. Thank you for listening.